Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. Want to talk about some neural nets? Sounds great. That was easy. You're listening to Linear Digressions. It's not really about neural nets per se, but it's about an interesting way of thinking about neural nets. Ooh, meta neural nets. A, l- <laughs> a not little bit. Nets. It's well, I guess your neural net, meaning your brain thinking about neural nets. I don't know. Sure. Uh, that was a stretch. <laughs> well, anyway, this is a this is a pretty interesting. You could say a metaphor, but it might even be stronger than that. It might be just a direct translation. Um, but it's this interesting idea that's being kind of promoted by a. Uh, pretty high-profile uh, neural net researcher named Andre Carpathy, I think is how you say his last name. Um, he's the uh, director of AI at Tesla right now. Oh, wow. So, okay. Um, yeah. So he works with a lot of neural nets for, well, primarily self-driving cars. So it's you know, computer vision stuff, um, but in other, other contexts, has works with lots of different kinds of neural nets. And he's got this kind of interesting point that neural nets, we shouldn't just think of them as kind of like these classification algorithms that are their own special type of problem-solving apparatus, but that instead they're a pretty natural extension of what we think of as software. So you're a software engineer. You you probably do stuff like write JavaScript code that renders web pages or something. Um, <laughs> or something. Hand or wave, something. hand wave. Let's think of software. Let's think of software in a certain, in a, a slightly, slightly different context, though, which is basically uh, a software is instructions to a computer that say when there are certain inputs that you get, then there are certain outputs that you produce, and all the stuff that happens in the middle is what we call software. And so, usually, as a software engineer, you are very painstakingly line by line writing out instructions for the computer about what it should do with those inputs so that it creates the outputs that you want. And the the metaphor here, but again, it's like maybe more than a metaphor, is that that's actually a pretty direct description of what neural nets do. So they take inputs from your data set and then there's labels that you're trying to produce and and a neural net's job is to do that mapping or that transformation from the inputs into the outputs. And so in that sense, you know, there's an algorithm, there's some kind of processing that happens in the middle, but in this case instead of it being written line by line by a human, it's written by a computer that's obeying some kind of meta instructions that the programmer is giving to it. So it's That's interesting. He calls it software 2.0 in the sense that it's software that's being written by computers. Hmm. So I want to I want to take a second explore software 1.0 a little bit more uh, because it's a little bit of a so what you said is a little bit of a simplification, right? Uh, You're writing instructions that then the computer follows, but actually in most cases you're writing instructions that then a compiler follows to make the actual instructions for the computer, right? And that that would be called compiling. So maybe you write some Java code or you write some C++ code, and then your compiler uh, will turn that into machine, like, bytecode or uh, actual machine language. 
and that that's the way that most programming languages work is you're not actually writing the machine instructions directly you're writing these instructions that are a little bit more understandable uh, to you as a human uh, and that would be a computer language a programming language and then a compiler or an interpreter will turn that into actual um, instructions that the machine can understand uh, but to kind of come back to what you just said around the differences between machine learning and and you know traditional programming with traditional programming you are working on what's in the box right you've got inputs going into a box and then you've outputs coming back out and you're actually reaching into the box either directly or you're working on something that reaches into the box for you um, and does what you tell it to do whereas machine learning or uh, neural making neural nets is kind of the the flip side of it right where you don't you start with the inputs and the outputs the the inputs and the desired outputs and then some sort of a thing creates what goes in the box you never actually reach into the box directly it's weird because they're kind of similar but they're also fundamentally different in that way in, in some way that one is concerned with inputs and desired outputs and the other is concerned with instructions that we are writing yeah but i think and I think it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting argument to follow because when you start to think about the way that you do software engineering as software 1.0, it has some, it has some suggestions for ways that you can think about software 2.0. So number one, a few things that are worth mentioning upfront, just to help give maybe a little bit of context is that when you're writing a neural net, the way to think about it is that there's a few levers that you have as a programmer. Um, you know, this is oversimplifying a bit, but the things that are most directly relevant are there's a computer that has to figure out what the algorithm is that it's going to write, namely what are the, um, n the weights that it's going to have in the neural net. And what you have to give it is the data examples, so the inputs and the outputs that you that you have and that you want, you give it some kind of objective function. So you say something like, I want you to optimize such that your error is as small as possible. And here's a definition for error. So the, the computer has some hints about when it's achieving progress. And then you give it a set of constraints and an optimization algorithm for uh, sort of going about that optimization process. And we've talked a little bit about how then optimization is something that computers, you know, have some, have some ability to solve those kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. But one of the points here is that the neural network that you might have in the, inside that black box, it has a lot of even a layer or two down, it has a lot of similarities with software. So if you're thinking about say a computer vision algorithm needs to do image recognition, you know, there's evolving feature demands that you have of that neural net, like you're giving it, if it's out doing a self-driving car, you're giving it all kinds of new cases that you expect it to be able to handle in the same way that uh, when you're writing software, there's probably all kinds of different feature requests that people have of things that that software can do. Mm -hmm. um, the, the neural net will be making erroneous predictions that need to be fixed. So you have to go in and, and correct it when it comes to the wrong conclusion in the same way that you could discover basically bugs in your software, bugs, stuff yeah. that it, that it does that it's not supposed to do. 
Um, and that the idea of improving this thing is fundamentally based around uh, iterating on it multiple times and that there's, you know, maybe a minimum viable model or a minimum viable product that you would build as your first iteration, but that a lot of the time that you spend is around figuring out where it fails, um, writing tests to try to force that behavior or to make it reproducible, and then introducing some kind of fix to the to the process so that it doesn't make that mistake anymore, watching it pass the tests, and then sort of growing the growing the body of the software out that way. And this is actually, I think, like some of the more interesting subpoints here. I was just listening to talk about this uh, over this past weekend, but that there's some pretty direct analogies here, like test-driven development. If you're looking for places yeah. to, yeah, if you're looking for places to make your neural net stronger, find counterexamples that it fails at, and then retrain it until it doesn't fail at those counterexamples anymore, and have those have those examples manifest themselves as software tests. And so then each time, yeah. you know, you retrain your neural net, you have to make sure that it's not missing predictions that it used to get correct. Do that as part of a continuous integration suite. So every time you're rebuilding the model, it's going through and it's doing a standard set of checks and do this, you know, in a way that's very, that's very fast. And that becomes just a natural part of training your algorithm is that it's going through all of these checks. You know, it's funny that you mentioned test-driven development because, so I, uh, is that a term in in the data science world? Because um, it's a I mean, specific only, term. In... Yeah, only insofar as, you know, we crib it from software engineering. I think it's much more of a software That's engineering funny. thing than a data yeah. science thing. Yeah, because if you do test-driven development in software engineering, typically what you're talking about is you write your tests first. And, and try to represent all of the behavior of the component that you're trying to write. And then you go and you write the component. And so it's almost like you're defining the behaviors, the inputs, and then the desired outputs. And then you're, you're having, uh, instead of having some algorithm write the guts, you are going and writing the guts. So it's kind of fundamentally the same concept except the difference is that you're doing all three parts rather than just doing the inputs and the desired outputs and defining those. One of the other things that I like about this test-driven development idea for training neural nets is that it's it's really easy when you're working in data science to have an algorithm that's uh, really good at easy things um, and that things that show up in your data set a lot. So in the example of a self-driving car, if you have a bunch of data from, let's say, Northern California, where it's beautiful and sunny and lovely most of the time, you'll have tons and tons of data in good driving conditions. But that basically doesn't tell you anything about thunderstorms or when it snows or mm -hmm. when you're off-roading or all these other weird things that can happen. And so if you had a data set like that, you were training some kind of classifier on it, it might have 98% accuracy and you're sitting there and you're feeling pretty good, but actually it's, it's not exactly like it's learned 98% of the things that it needs to learn for it to be a good algorithm. It's just learned 98% of the things that, you know, you kind of have given it the same easy task over same. and over again. Yeah. But the thing about test-driven development is that usually what you do is you don't give it lots and lots of versions of kind of the same easy 
test. Right. You try um, to find the corner cases. You try to find the, the places where it'll fall down. Yeah, exactly. And so once you have an idea that, okay, it knows generally how to solve this type of problem, you move on. You you give it some kind of new challenge. You don't spend write effectively the same test 10 more times and then feel really great that it passed all of them. Yeah. Instead, you go, yeah, you go out and you look for those, like the corner cases, the adversarial cases, the stuff that's weird. And so the idea that that's a, a, not a bad way to think about your, uh, the performance of your neural net. Like, I think that's actually a pretty, that's like a pretty interesting concept. And uh, actually that makes me, uh, that brings to mind one thing that I always try to do and often fail at because it requires a lot of discipline Every time you encounter a bug, make a test case for it. And that way you can, one, ensure that you solve the bug. And two, it ensures that the bug doesn't come back. And if you continue, if you continue to do that with software, uh, especially with components that have some finite number of states, and especially in like a functional context, then you, you kind of end up catching all of the possible bugs that a component can see. And I imagine it's probably similar with uh, with machine learning. If your algorithm fails at something, then make a test case for it and get it to pass. And that will not only uh, help you isolate the issue then, but it'll also help you not run into the same problems later. Yeah, I think a really interesting implication of that thinking too is it is it reflects the fact that the algorithm... The algorithm is pretty inextricably bound up with the data that you use to train it and to evaluate it. So if you have a test and you say, my algorithm has to pass this test, it has to get this classification correct, then that test effectively becomes part of the program in a way. Mm -hmm, And what this means for machine learning algorithms is that the tests are... Uh, you know, training cases or or test cases of data points. And so what that means is that your data is effectively part of your code and that making changes to the data set should be versioned in exactly the same, I mean, not maybe mm. literally the same technical way, but in a, in a very, uh, you know, in a, an analogous way to the way that you would version your, that you would version your software 1.0 code that you would yeah. say, if you, if you change something, then you have to check that into your Git repository and say what it is that you did. And that that means that data versioning, which is something that I think we've... Yeah, we've talked about that that a little bit here. Yeah. But that that becomes, it takes on a lot more importance. It's not just like a, oh, okay, I have some like a bookkeeping system, but no, that's actually part of building up the code base is building up the versioning that the data sets are associated with it. Yeah, a couple times in my career um, at the companies I've worked at, I've had the opportunity to have my interaction with a thing become part of the data set that ultimately feeds um, a neural net or some sort of a a machine learning algorithm. And I I was reflecting on that. I was kind of pontificating on that uh, after I did one of those. And I thought, wow, okay, this is kind of cool. Like, wherever this algorithm goes my interaction with it is part of what makes it do what it does. And so in some totally like invisible but present way, I am now inextricably removed or inextricably removable from this uh, system's interaction. It remembers you. 
Yeah, yeah, it's kind of <laughs> neat. Yeah, I love that idea. It, yeah, it is kind of fun. Um, so anyway, I think those were most of the most of the points I wanted to bring here. I just think, again, this like software 2.0 idea is something that's worth being familiar with and kind of thinking about when you brush your teeth. There's a lot of opinions <laughs> about whether following it all the way down, I think, but I think it's a fun idea. Um, there's a blog post that we'll put on LinearDigressions.com that goes into some more some more detail here and and spins out some of the implications. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, it's a totally different way of thinking about software. I can always use more of those. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lin Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.